one of the most discussed topics in all of the Bible, something that comes up again and again and again, almost more than anything else, is that of money. Money and possessions and, and generosity. This is something that was clearly very important to the biblical authors, whether that was the Apostle Paul talking about, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, or money is the root of, of many different kinds of evil. Or you go back to the Old Testament law and you see all these rules about how, to, how much of your grain harvest to give away, or, or how to tithe your grapevines and, and that kind of thing. Uh, or you come to the teachings of, of Jesus. Jesus talked about money all the time. He said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. So money and possessions is a very, very common topic throughout the Bible. But here's what's interesting. When you look at all these different passages, what you find is a common thread that sort of weaves through all of them. And it's this somewhat provocative idea that our posture of generosity, our posture towards our money is in some way connected to us experiencing what the Bible calls the blessing of God. The blessing of God. In some way, the way that we live with our resources and our generosity, it's tied in with our own well-being, our abundance, God's presence in our midst, his, his delight, his joy, somehow is tied to our giving. It's a provocative idea. And that's what we're gonna talk about in this series. Now I say all that and I know that for some of you, alarm bells are going off in your head, right? You've got red flags flying everywhere because there has been a whole history of abuse with this idea in the church, whether it's televangelists who are, you know, you know, preying on people's emotions to get a bit more cash so they can get a bigger private jet or or the whole prosperity gospel movement, which is this idea that that, you know, when you give and, and you give to the church, then God's on the hook to make you a millionaire, to make you successful. And so people, you know, build their whole faith on that idea. Or, you know, maybe it's the subtle, smaller ways that you felt a level of guilt or shame for not giving enough or not being generous enough. And so there's this whole gross, icky idea of shame tied in with all of this. So I acknowledge all of that. And I'll be honest, as a teacher, as a pastor, it's tempting to just want to avoid the topic altogether because I don't want to, I don't want to be associated with any of that junk and any of that abuse. But, but if it's true that this topic is one that was extremely important, extremely vital to the biblical authors, I think it's worth considering whether we need to be paying attention to it. And, and if there is something to this idea that, that our posture towards generosity is in some way connected to the blessing of God, if, if there is perhaps a way for us to give in such a way that makes our lives better, that leads to the, the healing of the world around us, then perhaps it's something that we need to be learning and paying attention to. Not going down the road of all that abusive stuff and the prosperity gospel, but perhaps rediscovering something that's there that can make our lives better. So that's what we're gonna talk about in this sermon series. Yes, it's a bit provocative. Yes, it's, it's an uncomfortable topic, but I'll remind you of one of the core values of Grace Church. It's that we go there. We have the hard conversations, we go there. And so when it comes to money and possessions and generosity, we're gonna go there. That's what we're talking about this month. Today, Tim is gonna set up for us the idea of what Jesus had to say about money and what he had to say about giving. Then next week, I'm gonna take us all the way back to the Old Testament law and show you some really interesting concepts that were introduced in the law for the Israelites that we could glean a lot from today. 
And then we'll talk about uh, generosity in the prophets and generosity in the apostles. And I think over the course of this series, every one of us is going to find some new ways to think about the things that we have. I'm really looking forward to diving in together with you. And let's start now by asking Jesus what he had to say. Well, as Barry said in the video, over the next few weeks, we are going to explore together what the Bible has to say about money and possessions and generosity, subjects that he readily admitted can be uncomfortable to talk about for lots of reasons. And Barry was right when he said that many people have, have used so-called biblical teachings on these subjects to abuse and to shame others for their own ends. And as Barry said, we are aware of the alarm bells that can go off in your minds when religious people start talking about money. And the last thing we want to do is to set off those alarms. What we are hoping to do over the next few weeks is together to discover anew, and I use that phrase carefully because I don't think anything we're going to talk about is brand new, but we're going to rediscover together what the Bible actually says about these subjects. Our promise is that we won't twist the Scripture to fit some agenda that we have. We will do what we always do when we prepare sermons. We will do the hard work of looking into the contexts and the language and the background and everything else that is related to the passages that we talk about so that you can be certain that we are honestly teaching what the Bible has to say about money and possessions and generosity. My request of you is that you stick with us. I know that it's easy when you hear four weeks on money for you to think, I know where this is going, I think I'll pass. I remember the last time we did a sermon series like this, someone said to me after the first sermon, he said, I'll see you in a month. <laughs> Please do stick with us. Our hope is that all that we say will be, first of all, true to what God has actually said about these important subjects, and secondly, that this will be helpful for all of us, that our prayer will be that as we look at these important subjects that our hearts will be changed in ways that simply bring honor to God. That is what we're about, folks, and I just wanted to say that up front. So, with that said, the first passages we will be looking at today are generally considered two of Jesus' most direct teachings on money and possessions. The first teaching is found in the middle of what is easily the most recognized of Jesus' sermons, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. And the second passage is a similar passage that's found in Luke chapter 12. Now, what we will find as we move through our Thanksgiving series is that all of Jesus' teachings on, on possessions and generosity, they all just fall squarely in with what the law and the prophets had said many centuries earlier, Jesus was not trying to create new ideas about generosity and gratitude. He wasn't at all. In fact, what I believe that we'll find is that Jesus' teachings were purposed to take the Jewish people back to what God 
had in store for them in the first place. The values that he had way back when they first became a nation are, were still the same values, and Jesus was just reminding them of what God wanted from them. I think this will become obvious when Barry talks about possessions and the law next week. Still, we are followers of Jesus. And as Jesus' followers, what He has to say on the subject, a subject that He talked about often and very directly, what He has to say should be foundational to our lives. So let's begin this series by looking at a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. You can find a passage on page 803 in the House Bible. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. While you're looking up this passage, I just want you to know that both of the passages that we've chosen for today are really long. If you know me, really long passages take a really long time to get through. We're just not going to be able to do it in half an hour. I'll just be honest with you. Um, when, we're, when I'm done today, if you have more questions about the passages or you want even further notes or details about them, just contact me. I'd be glad to talk to you about them because there's just so much in them, but we're going to have to skip over the top of a lot of things. But before we get going, first I want to say hey to people that are online. Um, I talked to some people yesterday at a social event, and they said they weren't going to be here, but they were going to be online. So those of you who saw me yesterday, welcome. And let me pray for us before we get going. Lord, this is a tough subject for a lot of us. Uh, it's hard to stand here in front of people and speak on behalf of you about these subjects, Lord, but I uh, pray that you'll give me courage to speak your word and also that everything I say will be honoring to what your word actually says, that we will be open to hearing your spirit speak to us about these important subjects today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, let's get right to it. Uh, Matthew 6, 19 starts this way. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. First off, I want you to know that the word that's translated store up here, it literally means this, to stockpile for a coming day of need. To stockpile for a coming day of need. This is what we're talking about. But what we really need to keep in mind is that most of the Jews listening to Jesus that day, I'd say probably 85 to 90% of them were so poor that they could only dream of ever stockpiling anything of value up for a coming day of need. They were living hand to mouth every day. And to make matters worse, most Jews were also being told by the religious elite, no less, that you got what you deserved. You earned your circumstances in life. As in, if you were rich, it's because God was blessing you because you were so righteous. But if you were poor, and most of the people present on that day when Jesus spoke to that crowd were poor, well, you see the point. You were poor because you were messing up somewhere in what God wanted from you. And here is Jesus telling a crowd of people, most of whom 
have nothing and feel like they are nothing that they shouldn't be stockpiling for a coming time of need. I am certain that many people in the crowd are wondering, does Jesus even know who he's talking to? Now, when Jesus said, don't store up earthly treasures where moths and rust can destroy them, we know what he was talking about. We know what he was talking about storing up. He's talking about storing up clothing, which moths did eat. And he was talking about storing up coinage or money, which the Greek, which in the Greek it says, it doesn't say where it'll rust, it actually says it will rot like rotting teeth. So the word is for rotting teeth, it will rot. And you know why most money rotted? It's because it was made cheaply and people would put it in bags and bury it in the dirt under the floors of their houses to save it from guests who? Thieves that Jesus even mentions here. Most people didn't have much, but when they had a little bit, they'd find some way to, to keep it from people who'd want to take it from them. Again, we're talking about people who mostly only had one set of clothing and people who necessarily had to worry about having enough of anything. And I'm sure many in the crowd were wondering if Jesus was living in some other world when he was talking about this. But don't think for a minute that Jesus was tone deaf to the world around him when he said these things. In fact, he was dead right on this one, especially to the five to fifth or 10 to 15 percent of the people who were living lives of plenty. He was simply saying this. If our thoughts are constantly on the concerns of the earth, then our hearts, which by the way, and this is really important for this passage, when any time they talk about heart in the Bible, they're not talking about our emotions. They're talking about the part of our being where we make rational decisions that direct our actions. So he's saying, if you're constantly thinking about things of earth, then the place where you make decisions that guide your actions will also be on things of the earth. But if your thoughts are primarily concerned with the things of heaven, then your heart will be moving towards things that are what? Valuable, that can't be eaten by moths or right away. Jesus wasn't saying anything necessarily disconnected from the real world. He was simply saying that where we put our energies will say a lot about what we truly care about. And I don't think it's too hard to accept that our actions will say loudly and clearly what we consider to be treasure. They just do. Uh, before I go any further though, before we look into what Jesus had to say to the crowd that day, I do want you to know that when Jesus is talking about treasure, it would have had a very different meaning to the Jews listening to him that day than what we think of when we think of treasure. It's a meaning that's lost on us. You see, most first century Jews would have known that the first place that God's Word talks about treasure is, believe it or not, in the story of Noah's Ark. 
And here's why they would have made a connection between Noah's ark and treasure that we're just going to miss. In our English Bibles, God tells Noah to build a what? An ark. But the Hebrew word and the Greek word that we translate as ark actually meant a chest for holding your most valuable possessions. In other words, what God told Noah to build was a huge treasure chest. The, the Latin word for chest is arco. And for some unknown reason, the translators of the King James took Arco straight into their translation, and now everybody thinks that Ark is an old word for boat. It's not. God had Noah build a great big treasure chest so he could put his most valuable possessions in that chest. And what are his most valuable chest treasures? His possessions, they are his animals, and most importantly, his faithful people. So the overarching lesson that the Jews would have known when they heard Jesus talking about treasure, the overarching lesson from Noah was this, that God treasures people. We are of great value to God, and his desire is to care for us and provide for us and to save us just like he did Noah. But I am certain that most of the poor people listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount didn't feel much like God's treasure for good reasons, too. They had almost nothing. They were poor. They were wondering about tomorrow's meal. So what Jesus did in the entire rest of this passage is work to convince His listeners that they were not only God's treasure but that they could trust Him to take care of them and provide for them and to save them, while they then could focus on things of true value. Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, He starts out by saying, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, the Aramaic word that gives us money here is mamanos. It's Aramaic, and it literally means this, the possessions that you put your trust in when trouble comes. It's like your backup plan, the thing that you know is going to be there for you. And you can see why almost everybody in our Bibles, translate, in English Bibles, translates mamanos as money, because it's just true. Most people in our world do trust in money to save them when trouble comes. But Jesus had a lot more to say about this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and body more important than clothes? See, Jesus has hit on two of the three things that most people in His crowd uh, worried about continually. They worried about clothing, food, and a roof over their heads. Well, He hit on two out of three. Then He goes on to show them how much of value they are to God. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. 
They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. I just got to stop and say that this is not in the Bible, but all of the Jewish traditional stories about Solomon said that he only wore purple because purple was the most expensive color of clothing in the ancient world. It denoted that you were rich and that also that you were royal. And so everybody just believed that Solomon only wore purple, and yet Jesus says what? The the grass of the field is far more beautiful than Solomon, even when he's the most dressed up. He goes on and says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And then he says this, he says, oh, you of little faith. Now, the word that gives us you of little faith is actually a noun. Now, I don't want to get too off the rails here, but the word is, it's oligopistoi. It's a noun. It's not, it's, it's actually this. This is what the Greek really says. He says, oh, you little faiths. Oh, you little faiths. It's as if Jesus had a nickname for us. Like, we're all little faiths. Now, I have a sermon's worth of stuff to tell you about this nickname but there isn't time for that today. Just take my word for it. It's an odd thing when he calls us little faiths, and it has to do with the way where we, we were created. But still, that nickname that he gave us is not something Jesus wants us to live up to. He doesn't want us to be little faiths. Look at what he says. He goes on and says, Don't, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then he says this, but seek first his kingdom, and remember, his kingdom is the place where God's will is always done, and it says, and his righteousness. And you have to remember that what his righteousness represents are the values that are the foundation of that kingdom where his will is always done. And then he says, and all these things which he's talking about the things that pagans run after, like clothing and food and all that kind of stuff. He says, all those things are going to be added unto you. In other words, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all this other stuff is going to be added to you. It's going to be given to you as well. And in this passage, Jesus does go on to say a few more things about trusting God and how he'll take care of us and that kind of thing. But I think we can already see what his intentions in this part of the sermon are. He wanted to lift up his listeners and to tell them in no uncertain terms that they were God's treasure, and as God's treasure, they could trust him, trust him to take care of the things that they so often worried about so that they, in turn, could concentrate on what is really worthy of their heart's attention. And that would be things that are treasured in heaven. Interestingly, the second passage that we're going to look at today in Luke is where Jesus tells us what is treasured in heaven. So let's all turn to that passage now. It's Luke 12, verses 13 to 34. It's page 865 in the House Bible. That's Luke 12, 13, 34. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about all of this passage, but I just want to tell you that it starts out 
with someone demanding that Jesus intervene in a family estate dispute. Can I just say that this is one of those places where the NLT, which is our house Bible, which I'll be honest, I'm the one who said we need to use the NLT in this church, and so we have it. But this is one verse that I do not understand why they translated it the way they do. If you read it, it says something, and someone said, please, would you do something real polite? There's nothing polite about this verse at all. It's just like, boom, it says this. It's like this. Someone in the crowd shouted, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Just out of the blue, someone screams at him from the side of the road to get involved in this family fight about money. And Jesus wisely avoids getting involved in this dispute. But he did know exactly what the root of this family squabble was. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, beware, be on your guard. Be on your guard against every kind of greed. And then he makes this statement, life is not measured by how much you own. Now think about that a minute. Let's just be honest. We all know that how much a person owns is the primary way that most people measure someone's life these days. Let's just be honest. The more you have, the more important you are the more something you are. And it's as true now as it clearly must have been then. So, not measuring our own lives or others' lives by how much we own must be a value of heaven. So, there's one thing that we should be storing up, if you will, and that is we should not be measuring others by how much they own As hard as it is for us not to live that way, it goes against the grain about the way we think about things, but we're not supposed to ever measure anyone's life's value by how much they own. And what Jesus does is He goes right into telling a parable about a man who believes that his life should be measured by how much he owns. And so this man sets out to show the whole world that he owns a great deal, and he's going to prove it by building a whole bunch of barns for stockpiling grain, and he's going to stockpile a ridiculous amount of grain so that everybody in the world knows that he's got a lot. And yet the story goes that he does all of this showing off building of barns stuff, not knowing that his life is going to end in a couple of days. And Jesus says the moral of the story is this in verse 21 when He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And again, we all know that in our world, storing up earthly wealth is thought to be a sign of being prudent and on top of things. It's a sign of being the master of your own destiny. Yet Jesus said having a rich relationship with God, and can I just say that when we look at what a rich relationship with God in the Scriptures, it tends to say that it means being surrendered to God and trusting Him with our lives. Jesus is saying being surrendered to God and trusting Him with our lives is a far more valuable thing to have in your life, and it's a sign of true wisdom. So I guess having a rich relationship with God is another 
another way of stockpiling important things in heaven. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he restates almost word for word what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the next 10 verses, he repeats what he said to the crowd about life being about more than food and clothing. And he tells them that God even takes care of the birds, so how much more valuable are you? And he says that the lilies are clothed more beautifully than Solomon. And he says you need to seek first the kingdom of God, and that will lead to God giving us everything else we need. I mean, he's just telling them the same stuff he said in the Sermon on the Mount. But then he comes to verse 33, and he says something terribly unexpected that he didn't say in the Sermon on the Mount. He's just now talking to his disciples, and he says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, the first thing to say about this is that giving to those in need was not a new idea that Jesus just brought up. First century Jews believed that giving to the poor was a spiritual discipline. In fact, the Gospels give us stories about rich Jews who make a big public display about giving money to those in need. It was just a part of what was expected of people. And this kind of giving to those in need grew out of the fact that much of the Old Testament law talked about the need to take care of the most vulnerable in the community, and the law actually made a list of the people who they would consider the most vulnerable, and here's the list widows, orphans, and the foreigners living among you. But I have to say, it may seem like Jesus is going over the top here. Sell all your possessions and give everything to those widows and orphans and foreigners in need? Really, Jesus? Everything? I want you to know that Jesus was actually doing something that we know was a very typical Jewish rabbinical form of instruction. It's called a how much more statement. It tends to begin with a hyperbolic statement about doing something unimaginable and then moving to, to saying how much more God was going to do for you anyway, even if you did all of this. The disciples would have known that he was giving them a how much more statement here. And it goes, they would have understood it was like this when Jesus was talking to them. If you give, if you sell all your possessions and you give the proceeds, proceeds to those who are in real need, then how much more will God take care of you? His bottom line was this. When you show through your actions that you treasure what God values, then God will stockpile what He treasures for you in heaven. Now, I know that all of this stuff about treasure stockpiling in heaven thing, it's just hard to get our arms around what that really looks like. Do we all have some treasure chest up in heaven with something in it that relates to God's? I don't know what this means. I don't really know. But what I think Jesus was simply trying to do was to get us those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, 
to think about how much we really trust God and what is it that we truly treasure. And Jesus is saying in this passage that the answer to that question isn't going to be something we say with our mouths. It's going to be something we do with our lives. Something I've been thinking about as I've been preparing for this passage, uh, we know that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke that we're looking at right now, he wrote his Gospel for a specific Gentile man named Theophilus. And Theophilus was someone who had chosen to follow Jesus, but apparently, as a Gentile, he had been told by Jewish Christians, no less, that God really didn't care about the Gentiles. He didn't send Jesus for Gentiles. Gentiles weren't treasured by God. And what we know is that Theophilus's reaction to being discounted by some Jewish Christians was to ask Luke to do some investigating and to find out once and for all if he and other Gentiles were a part of God's treasure or not. And what Luke discovered and what he told Theophilus through what we call the Gospel of Luke, what he told Theophilus was this, yes, absolutely, Theophilus, you and all other Gentiles are treasured by God. And while I'm sure this was great news to Theophilus and other Gentile Christians, we know from history that many, many Gentiles upon choosing to follow Jesus didn't have to think about whether they were willing to give up anything for, in the way that Jesus had talked about in, when he said you sell all you have and give it to the poor. They didn't have to think about that at all because we know from history that many of them almost immediately upon following Jesus had everything in their lives taken away from them. They were rejected by their families. They were ostracized by the wider communities. We know that many were denied the right to practice their occupations and they were turned away from being able to buy food in the marketplaces. Their decision to follow Jesus often meant they had to trust God for everything. And I am confident that Luke made certain that somewhere in his story about the life of Jesus, he quoted Jesus telling his first Jewish disciples that they too had to have a willingness to give up everything to trust God and store up treasure in heaven. And what these two passages have shown me is that while Jesus is talking about things related to money and possessions and stuff, what Jesus really wants us all to come to terms with is how much do we honestly trust God with our lives? Do we believe, no matter what our circumstances might be, that we are God's treasure? And that as His treasure, He will take care of us. That He knows what we need. And He will be generous with us in His care. And that our living into His care opens up our lives to stockpiling things of true value. Things like not giving in to greed and not measuring other people's lives by what they own and having a rich relationship with God and using what we have been given to care for widows and orphans and the foreigners among us. And what we will see as we move into the coming sermons over the rest of the month is that none of this is new. 
God has always wanted his world to be a place where each person is seen as God's treasure and where all people share in an equal abundance of God's generosity and his blessings. But Jesus entered a world where much of that stuff had been forgotten. And we live in a world where much of that has been forgotten too. And the call of Jesus, the one we say we're following, is to believe him when he says we're precious treasure to him and that we can trust him to care for us in ways that make it possible for us to set aside our anxieties and let him take care of the things that he knows we need so we can focus on the treasures of heaven. And I want to stop for one minute because I know this can all sound really obscure and all that and what I don't want you to think that we're saying since you all need to go sell everything and give it all away immediately. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, I don't want you to think that we're saying you shouldn't plan for the future or you shouldn't save for the unexpected. Let's be straight with you. Jennifer's right here. She'll agree with me, I hope. Um, I'm sure. We plan for retirement. Guys, I'm going to be 70 in the next year. Someday, I'd like to retire, but we plan for it. We have savings for the unexpected. We have life insurance. We have a will. We have all of the things that are truly wise in our world, but next to this careful preparation is also God's call on us to trust Him enough to be generous in ways that reflect the values of heaven. And according to Jesus, one of the ways you can tell what we really care about is what actions we take with our money. So in the end, both of these passages are about generosity, God's continual generosity towards me and my generosity towards the things of heaven. These passages force me and I am sure some of you to come to terms with your own hearts, the parts of us that make the decisions for action, to come to terms with whether we're willing to make the hard decisions to avoid the pitfalls of all that the world says is worthy of treasure, and then to align my values with those of the abundant and compassionate King of the kingdom of heaven. And my prayer is that we will all examine our hearts and that together over the next few weeks, we will continue to discover what the true blessings are that come from taking God as his unfailing word and that we will surrender our hearts and live in to the generosity that can only come from heaven. Would you pray with me about this? Father, thank you that we can trust you and that by surrendering our lives to you, we can live into the fullness of what it is to be fully human, what you intended for us. Father, I pray that we'll be a community that so trusts you that we will use every aspect of our being, every bit of who we are, including our possessions, in ways that further the values of your kingdom 
I thank you that you give us this opportunity to walk with you and to change your world, to make it a place that brings you joy and brings blessing on the peoples of this earth. I pray these things thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen.